Hello, Aaron. Hello, Tom. So, I met you a few weeks ago. We should probably introduce who you are to the listeners, because the listeners are very fickle about these kind of things, you know, new voices, this kind of stuff. Okay. So, I have just come back from a monumental road trip, a road trip to end all road trips, and mysteriously, I'm still married, which is amazing, <laughs> and... Part of this road trip was heading to Westchester, Pennsylvania, in order to meet one of the regular hosts of this podcast, Brandon DiCamillo, and wander around Westchester and have a few meals with him, but also to go to New Jersey Toy Con. This is where you come into it, because obviously, well, I should also point out, you've actually appeared in previous Attic aficionados through stories that Brandon has told. So, for example, your uncle owns the arcade. Yes, yes, my uncle lives in Arcade in Philly. <laughs> and also you were instrumental in the 8mm film viewing that was discussed, I think, in one of the early Attic Aficionados. So what the standard is here is if you want to raise new topics, feel free to interrupt, do whatever you want to do. But how would you introduce yourself to the Attic Aficionados listening audience? I guess I'm Brandon's friend. You know, I've known him since high school, uh, so... I pretty much am on that side of the Attic's aficionados uh, <laughs> part of the coast. And uh, I am a avid collector and, I guess, hoarder of toys and games and things like that. So I fit right in and, and I have a very full attic. Very good. That's the standard requirement, although Brandon has failed dismally associated with that component. But, but let's explore this a little bit. So what I found fascinating, I probably should set the stage here. The drive to New Jersey Toy Con was about three hours. And <laughs> all of us, I think, were pretty catatonically exhausted. However, I, having just come from a road trip, appreciated how important it was to have a conversation with the driver. So I sat up front. You were driving for the entire journey. So hats mm -hmm. off to you for that to start off with. And we had a number of conversations. We covered a number of bases. One of the things that I found fascinating about you was your knowledge of G.I. Joe stuff specifically relating to the number of figures, the releases of figures, and these kind of things. But we covered a number of topics. We covered your time in Southern California. We covered a wide variety of incidental topics that no doubt will be very interesting. Now, I probably should... I mean, I've never said this explicitly, but when I think of Attic aficionados, I think of a number of things. I think of hobbies. I think of failed hobbies. As you've noted, I think of hoarding and hoarding-related remedies. There's a good component associated with food. There's a general storytelling component, a little bit of humour of everyday life, and there's a kind of cross-cultural exchange, which I like to represent perhaps as the East Coast or the West Coast, but others might want to represent as, say, Australia and the US. I don't know why <laughs> they'd want that, but anyway. So in terms of these topics, let's start with G.I. Joe specifically. How big is your G.I. Joe collection? Let's see. I recently started getting back into the more classic stuff from uh, my time as a kid. So I, I guess what you would say is the, a real American hero line. And I'm probably, I guess about 200 figures into that now mm -hmm. in various vehicle vehicles here and there. I just kind of got back into it, especially with going to these, these toy conventions we've been going to over the last year. I'm running across a lot more stuff. Mm -hmm. It's, and I like it a little more than going to eBay because you get to see the stuff hands-on, see how beat up it is, uh, see the condition a little more, and not pay shipping, you know, maybe make a little deal. Uh, so that, I I have that stuff. And then Brandon and I both heavily collected the 
25th anniversary stuff that came out, uh, I guess, around 2007. Mm. So we were both collecting that a lot. I probably have about 100 of those. I, I didn't collect as far in as Brandon did, but so I have a good amount of that stuff, too. But that's pretty much it with the Joe stuff. But I really like it because it's a very uh, it's a vast toy line. Mm. It's just humongous toy line. Yeah, I, had, I didn't really appreciate that until we actually had the conversation in the car. I guess I assumed it was probably 70 to 80 figures. And when you said that there were more than 300 in the original line, I just thought, gosh, this is a far bigger thing than I've ever really understood it to be. Yeah, it's it's crazy because it, uh, it went from like 82. The original line went from like 82 to probably about 96, somewhere there, 96, mm. 97. It was coming out pretty much my entire life as a child. And how many figures a year on average were coming out? Was it like thirty uh, a year or what was it? Um like? the original line was thirteen. The the original Joe line's thirteen the first mm. year. But it, it really ramped up from there. I'd say probably I probably around somewhere around twenty five or thirty figures a year at the height of it. Yeah, that's a good number. Okay. Plus plus the vehicle drivers. The vehicle the vehicles always came with a pilot. Mm-hmm. kind of figure unlike unlike star wars that didn't but just carded figures you're probably looking at about anywhere from 20 25 and the main source of this was a comic book right or was it a tv series or was it both yeah so the main source um, it's actually hasbro was trying to cash in on the licensing from the old 12 inch ones from the 60s mm. so the names based off of that uh but it was originally linked to a comic book and then the laws changed about cartoons being able to have a toy line. Mm-hmm. Um, prior to that, the law in America was toys had to predate a cartoon. A cartoon couldn't just be a commercial for a toy. Mm. So G.I. Joe, um, He-Man, they they all got around that by having a comic book first for like the first year and then started the cartoon. So with when you get into G.I. Joe, there's – really two different things there's the comic book and the cartoon and really neither of them have anything to do with each other at all <laughs> except that uh the guy who wrote the comic book larry hama was forced to include the newer figures every time they would um come out and i i know he had issues with that towards the end like he hated some of the later designs mm. and it didn't want to incorporate them in the uh comic at all so they would kind of force them to though so that's interesting. You've got toy manufacturer, mm-hmm. then comic book creator who's being forced to pick up whatever the toy manufacturer. I mean, was there ever feedback where the comic book actually created new characters that the toy manufacturer picked up? Or was it always the toy manufacturer feeding the comic book creator the new lines? Um, I believe it was it was a deal. Usually it was a deal between Marvel mm-hmm. and whatever toy line. Um, I don't know that. Well, with Larry Hama, the guy who wrote the G.I. Joe comic, he also was writing the file cards for the back of the toys. Mm. And he was really like shaping the lore. But I think what would happen was Hasbro would come to him and be like, here's what the new toys look like. And he would give them names and personalities. Mm. And then they would name them from that. Mm. But I think it was always that the toy line, the toy company would come with like a handful of stuff and be like, here, here's a pile of crap. Make something out of it. And, and just give it to some creator who would write a comic book or, or a cartoon. They would pitch cartoons, too. That's fascinating. Album. And yeah, okay. Real so, weird. so let's go. The guy who created it, 
the law creator who does the comic book and writes the back of the toy cards. Mm-hmm. You tend in these kind of creative things to have like a driving creative force, which mm-hmm. he seems to be in some regard, but at the same point, he still, he still has to basically eat the stuff that's shoveled to him, which is yeah. a pretty really strange relationship. He, he was a writer and mm. an artist with Marvel Comics. Interesting. So he didn't just do G.I. Joe. Mm-hmm. Um, he did other things as well for Marvel, but he's like the godfather of G.I. Joe. Like at these G.I. Joe conventions and stuff, he's always there signing and doing things like that. But in terms of his background, I mean, did he have a military background? Was there anything that made him ideally suited to this toy line? Uh, I can't remember if he actually did have. I want to say his. He might have had, um, like, grandparents or someone who did. Mm. Interesting. So he wasn't a Vietnam veteran or anything like that. I mean, he didn't have primary contact. Uh, you know, I don't believe... I, I. You know, I wouldn't know. Okay. Okay. I probably it, did it one time, but I just... <laughs> don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Yeah. It's this kind of folklore stuff that I find really fascinating, because certainly the stuff that interests me always has, on one side... Well, usually both, actually. Like, military history... And also there's some element of psychedelia in there as well. I've been able to track a number of my hobbies that are based on certain aspects of the military plus the strange psychedelia element as well. And that seems to drive a lot of my hobby interests. So when I hear about these creative folk, particularly that are creating like militarized lines, it always interests me, you know, the background history, basically. One of the things that fascinated me about your and Brandon's interaction happened actually after we were finished with New Jersey ToyCon. I'd been attempting to buy Brandon and his wife dinner, and I was actually able to do it, but I had to do it very covertly. And what fascinated me about that interaction was, it, let me set this up for our listeners, Brandon, Aaron, and I went to a diner. You two were sitting down, we'd all ordered the food, the food had come, and I was able to excuse myself. But the thing about this interaction in particular, which was so funny was it took about 10 minutes from when I excused myself to when I got back to the table. And through this 10 minutes, there were a series of events which occurred, in, in basically involving the line and the paying line and problems in the paying line and lots of noise, which was probably about 15, 20 feet away from you both. <laughs> right. Yet I was able to pay, come back, sit down. You guys were just so completely enthralled. I think you'd been talking figures, like, non-stop, exchanging <laughs> photographs, talking about a variety of things. Like, time and space had just been lost to both of you. <laughs> and I was able to pay for the meal, which, for folks listening in, Brandon made it notoriously difficult for me to do anything through this trip. I mean, I tried to pay for meals. I tried to slip money in certain circumstances. He wasn't having any of it until this moment of weakness with you and he just tr- absolutely transfixed on figures and phones and swapping images. And I was able to steal myself away and have a series of interactions, which were very curious, but was able to pay for the meal and come back. You two were just none the wiser. Like you were completely engulfed in whatever you guys were discussing. I don't even remember. Like, I remember at the start you were exchanging like images that you'd taken through, I think the con and also some other stuff. But when I came back, you the topic was still relatively similar, but all that time had just completely been lost. I thought it was very funny. <laughs> yeah, that's normally, we're pretty oblivious to anything when we get talking about dorky stuff like toys. And I believe Brandon was having me send him a picture of uh, that I took of him in his parents' basement holding uh, crossbows and catapults. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that was so. another theme through the time there. 
I think what was particularly funny was, I guess Brandon has this view that crossbows and catapults are still an ongoing thing. Like, there are still people playing it, there's still a collector's market, it's still a thing of interest. We went into a game store, the Gameskeep, I think, in Westchester, mm-hmm. and I was kind of mulling around, and he was mulling around as well. And he came up to the counter, he's like, do you have any crossbows and catapults stuff? He was really excited about this, and the, the guy who obviously gets... You know, insert random ancient game here kind of question. Just look at and said, um, no, that's not, you know, we, we haven't had that in stock. Um, it's mainly a collector's thing. What I didn't realise about crossbows and catapults were actually the number of box sets that came out. Like, I originally thought it was a single game, but actually there were expansion sets that came out as well. Yes, yeah, there were. I... I never had it as a kid. I only know about it because Brandon won't stop talking about that game. He loves it so much. I and I guess he has very fond memories playing it as a mm. kid. But I have looked up on eBay to ask him, like, did you ever have this and that? And there were like some um, one off kind of like expansion pieces. Like mm. there was like a uh, I believe like a dragon. Certainly. Yeah. And uh, some other like like there was like a Trojan horse kind of thing. Like there were these like big pieces. But and that stuff is really, really expensive. Yes. It's it's crazy how much all of that stuff is. There was also like a pirate game that he also has that was like crossbows and catapults, except it was pirate stuff. My great frustration with those kind of games, and I have a number through my childhood that I it came up just today. There's a game called Escape from Kolditz. Kolditz was a castle in Germany where they kept prisoners of war. And the aim of Escape from Colitz is you have one player who plays the German guards and one player who plays the British POWs, basically. Mm-hmm. And you have to find a way as the British POWs to escape from Colditz, either by overpowering the guards or sneaking out. It's a classic game. It's a game that a friend of mine and I played over a long weekend. It's one of those kind of games where it takes that long to actually play. However, I can't imagine, aside from my friend actually coming from Australia and playing with me, ever playing that game with anyone else it's too eclectic the rules are like too out there you need to just the reading alone like literally we took a week to read the rules and understand the rules before we even started the game and i'm wondering if crossbows and catapults like where in the game playing spectrum crossbows and catapults is like that that game sounds really is that more like a uh axis and allies or like a stratego kind of game where you it's like a long-term strategy it's more than that there are a series of games which is similar to Axis and Allies, actually, Brandon and I... Were you, did you play Axis and Allies with Brandon, or have you had the opportunity? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> because that's it's all that level. Like, the rules alone, you've got to think about how you're going to strategize it from the start of the game. Like, right. I seem to... I think my friend and I, we, we switched roles. So the role of the Germans is not to necessarily be a kind of Hogan's Heroes buffoon German style... You can't try to early on counteract the potential for the British to escape because the British can use that to escape as well. It's an interesting okay. game. It's just one of these games which I see. I saw it was on special. There was a Black Friday special on Escape from Colors. I was like, hmm. I said to my wife, this game is normally $60. It's now $47. Is this worth purchasing? And then I explained it to her and we both agreed this is a game we're never going to play together. So. Right, right. I I believe that Crossbows and Catapults is more of like a a little kid's game, really, okay. because okay. you set up your your little defenses and you have like these little figures and then you literally just your crossbows and your catapults are all rubber band mm-hmm. weapons, basically, and you fire 
bombs and try yeah. to knock them down. So I, that, which it makes perfect sense why Brandon would like it so much. Cause it's all about destroying something. I mean, he just loves like yeah. wrecking things. So we talked about this in a, there's a game called little wars, which HG Wells published in 1908. And that's exactly little wars. Little wars is about firing projectiles at things in order to have many battles. And I think crossbows and catapults is a formalization of little wars but they used to do it to an even greater extreme. I mean, prior to even to Little Wars, they would have tiny little cannons that would fire, literally with gunpowder in them, that would fire, you know, across, I mean, blinding and impaling faces and a bunch of other things. <laughs> so this kind of game is well lauded in general history. Eventually, people started realizing, hold on, wait, rather than actually firing projectiles, you can use dice. Right. Like, dice can actually, like not throwing the dice at the walls, but actually rolling to see if the things fall down rather than using projectiles. But right, yeah. right. That's where you lose Brandon. Unless you're rolling the <laughs> dice at something to knock it over, you pretty much lost him at that point. Alas, alas. So I got him a box of stuff. This was another thing that I really had been planning for a long period of time. I got him a big jar of peppers, which apparently he's, he's shown to a bunch of people. And I got him, like, the difficulty with Brandon is, is the books thing. Some books, obviously, Brandon could get into, but I was just worried. I got him some D&D stuff with a lot of pictures in it, and I also got him a couple of other books, getting gifts for people and just amassing stuff. And a lot of it was, I'd already sent him some tiny little miniatures. I'm not sure if you saw those. So I passed on some more of those, but also structural elements. Returning to how Artificionado started, our mutual friend Art Webb moved out here. And I've been communicating and, I guess, working with Art on and off for more than a decade now. And to a lesser extent, Brandon, but also Art's brother, Ted. Mm -hmm. So the starting of this podcast was really when Art started attending my company Dungeons & Dragons game. And part of that was building dungeons actually out of these block pieces. But after doing it for a year or so, I realized that the block pieces were actually, it's it takes time. So I passed on all my blocks as well. Uh, to Brandon's daughter, Millie, to start creating forts and these kind of things. Because I think the building of forts is really an important part of childhood development on some fundamental level. So I passed on all that stuff to him as well. But the main thing was, in parallel to this, in parallel to my box being brought across from the West Coast, a long-term mutual friend of, or at least of Brandon and mine as well, a fellow who went by the name of Jersey Josh, but goes by JJ King, on the Attic Aficionado's website, passed on a similar-sized legal box full of what was in there. There was everything in there. It was like Masters of the Universe and Star Trek. Let's describe this to the listeners. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of the um, the Toy Biz X-Men from, like, the early 90s, like, like 93 air. There was some Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, original Masters of the Universe stuff and a yeah. lot of Star Trek The Next Generation stuff. Curious Which quantity. is wild. Yeah, because I just don't remember that stuff ever being on the shelves, but mm. it was it was in there. And uh, yeah, some Batman stuff. Yeah. Uh, superpowers figures. Yeah, there was some weird stuff in there. Anyway, Certainly. as we came back from after, after the meal and what have you, we ended up back at Brandon's place kind of thumbing through this large box from Jersey Josh. And the thing that struck me out of it was more, I mean, I, you tell a story associated with your departure from West, the Westchester area 
and how all your toys were thrown away. <laughs> yes. And yeah. may- maybe tell this story for the benefit of our listeners and then I'll get onto my point. Yeah. So when I was uh, a senior in high school, my mother got transferred out to California, Southern California. And I was pretty much told like, at, when you graduate, you're either moving with your dad to Ohio or you're moving to California. Uh, and part of that was I had to pack all my toys. Uh, I had to pack all my own stuff, like mm. my bedroom and all that. But being that I was 18 and just super irresponsible and hanging out with my friends those last couple of months, I didn't pack anything, really. And then <laughs> my mom shows up. Who she's already been living in California. She shows up for my graduation. She's like, where's all your stuff? Like, why isn't it packed? And I was just kind of like, well, you know, I just didn't have time, which is such a lie because I had like four months. Um, so she was like, okay, I'll pack it. And I went to go visit my dad on, on my way to California. And when I got to California, all my stuff was thrown out. My mom just went through all my toys, pretty much took the Star Wars stuff aside and gave the rest to like the goodwill and to my uncle. So yeah, all my childhood toys were pretty much just gone. (laughs) So it's been a, a very traumatic thing in my life ever since then. (laughs) I I had a similar story. In fact, I think this is, this is a kind of kindred connection. My mother was a diplomat or became a diplomat when I was about 15, but took posting when I was 17. So I went through a similar process, except Unlike you in some regard, I actually packed up and gave away because that was the only real option. There was no foreseeable option of me storing any of my stuff. So I had a girlfriend at the time and gave her, to her brother a bunch of my miniatures and role-playing books and a bunch of other stuff. She proceeded to be cheating on me in a really splendid way. And it's just like part of the psychological trauma associated with that thing. But also um, the stuff that my mother did put into storage was all destroyed. And when I came back to Australia 10 years later, there was a terrible experience of me arriving at my mother's house. And I was, I don't know, in my late twenties at the time, I guess, even perhaps even older. And she said, I said to her, you know, like you had a small amount of my stuff, like, can I go and look at it? And she said, well, it's in this locked room, but you can't go and look at it. And I, this is 10 years later, I'd fly back to get it. And, <laughs> Um, I said, this is ridiculous. Just let me see that. And then I real, then she told me that it had all been lost. And apparently like none of the stuff was there. I did it. I was able to find some records, but basically everything else had, had gone from that. So from this kindred experience, the notion that someone would keep their toys. And I guess obviously Jersey Josh has probably lived in Jersey for his entire life. He's probably not had any large moving experiences. He's probably not had to rely on his parents to look after his valuable toys, he's been able to hoard them in one place at one time. So what I found amazing with his collection was, firstly, how unchewed they were. Like, I mean, everything, even the stuff that, like, has circulated through cousins and what have you and ended up back at my mother's place. She's got a small bowl with, like, a couple of Star Wars figures in it and things like that. They've all mm-hmm. got, like, random teeth marks from other kids. I mean... The fact that you have this collection of toys in almost pristine condition, he'd created labels. So, to set the stage. Oh, yeah. That's (laughs) right. I gave my wife, as a joke, he knew the name of the female Klingon, but I gave my wife a female Klingon. My mother-in-law said perfectly when I gave it to her, 
look, look, she looks just like you, Michelle. Tom got you a Klingon version of you. Which was just absolutely perfect in terms of the giving of the gift as well. So anyway, I presented my wife this female Klingon that was supposed to have a base with specific writing that Jersey Josh had actually put on it. And Josh contacted me and he said to me that there was a base at the bottom of the box that was supposed to go with the Klingon and he named the Klingon perfectly. So... Oh, it's still there. <laughs> it's still at Brandon's, so I tell you that. Yeah, I'm not sure if I want the, the base. I'm not even sure what happened to that figure, actually. I think I left it in my wife's uh, craft room. No doubt <laughs> it'll turn up at some stage. But, um, yeah, the fact that he, like, when you pass things on to people, and I, I guess I did this with regards to Brandon and his daughter as well. Like, I passed on quite a few things, but I've, like, lost any care or attention to that. What I'm trying to do is infect a future generation, basically. What I'm trying to do is pass on something so they will have these little things in their mind as they go through life. They'll wonder, you know, those tiny little goblins, their gnawing teeth, this kind of stuff. But the thing that fascinated me about Jersey Josh was that he gave it to Brandon, I guess with the sole view that, that Brandon would be a keeper of this stuff and the stuff would be kept precious and intact and whole. And maybe I ruined that with regards to taking the one Klingon figure and passing on to my wife. Did you take any of the Jersey Josh items? Did they, uh, they move? Yeah, your I got, yes, I got, um, the one superpower Robin. It's mm. from the superpowers line because <laughs> I need them because I have the Batmobile. So Brandon was like, Oh yeah, take that one. So I took him. Uh, that was it. That's all I took. Yeah. I, I already I, had my, uh, the, the thing. The only Masters of the Universe figure that I ever wanted back again, I was actually able to purchase at New Jersey Toy Con. The Battle Armor Skeletor mm-hmm. is really the only Master of the Universe figure I ever wanted to have. I thought maybe a Battle Cat, but really, when I saw that guy, I didn't even haggle about the price. Handed over my 30 bucks, happy. Have it back here. The armor still works. <laughs> yeah, well, that's important. Because exactly. there's really no way to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just keep it in the unwound case in all cases, and only when I'm showing someone how the battle armor works do I wind the armor up. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was interesting. I guess I've never been to a toy convention before, but certainly Brandon was very critical of it. How did you rate New Jersey Toy Con 2017? Uh, well, I'm not going to use one of Brandon's weird scales. It goes up to like 56 or something like that. But uh, yeah, on a scale of 1 to 10, it was probably seven mm-hmm. i would say I, it, it certainly wasn't the best one we've been to actually that convention in itself used to be better it's mm. just it's getting worse every time mm. uh, it seems like the actual retail room with the the toy people is less and less every year mm. or every every time we go i don't think our next one we're going to is in february and that one's uh closer to us and that one was really good last year so we're mm. we're looking forward to that mm-hmm. It was good. I mean, it, I think as long as you find something that you want to buy, mm-hmm. it makes it it makes it good. Mm-hmm. That's an um, interesting rating system. I mean, certainly from my perspective, the things that fascinated me were the games room, not the arcade games, although that obviously got a lot of interest as well. But I'm interested in miniature gaming, I guess you'd call mm-hmm. it, like Warhammer, Warhammer 40,000, this kind of stuff. So I'm always interested in seeing that. I don't actually play the game. Very similar to the Escape from Colditz discussion, I need a very particular kind of person to play a game like Warhammer with. And in this country, well, just in general, you find competitive players, and I'm just not interested in that. I'm interested right. in a kind of leisurely, 
you know, over a weekend with friends. And the difficulty is the one guy who I know who plays, who comes and stays with me periodically, can get kind of competitive. And it's actually really interesting to watch him play because I realize when he's getting competitive that I just need to move back a little bit. Like he starts getting very, like you've got to measure things exactly and stuff like that. But I love seeing the games played. And the things that interest me is the kinds of armies that people paint and build and, you know, the whole collecting part of that hobby. And that's one of the things I found really fascinating there because there were eclectic armies there that were not the standard power gaming armies. I think the group that they had playing there, and it was just a really small group, were clearly a bunch of friends that just utilised the space. It wasn't a competitive tournament style thing. For me, I was looking for very selective, like I was looking for particular Robotech figures and I got one and that was wonderful. I got the Battle Armor Skeletor. Mm-hmm. And then I just picked up, I think, three Star Wars figures just to have them. So for me, yeah, it was fine. I mean, I think the the thing that interested me was actually the group dynamic getting there. I really enjoyed chatting with you. It was nice to meet Andy. It was interesting to kind of see Brandon in, you know, in, in this element, basically. And also I caught up with a listener there, Ron Kleiss. It was wonderful to meet Ron. And yeah, for me, it was a good day. I think the weather, it's funny, actually, because people complained about the weather a lot more than i thought about it i my secret weapon which i discovered in the uk was scottish wool so i was wearing a scottish wool sweater which means it could have gone 30 40 degrees colder (laughs) before i actually felt anything but yeah it was an interesting day and it was just a nice day out and certainly the distance is very real though yeah i I think the distance probably affected you more than anyone else because brandon and Andy were cutting logs in the back seat and they were <laughs> sleeping for a majority of the trip. Um, every time, every time, Tom, that's the way that that the, trip goes. The funniest thing was towards the end of the evening, we were sitting at Brandon's place and Brandon's like, was really energetic. He's like, I want to get pizza. Let's get pizza. And I, I don't even think we needed to exchange glances. I was like ready to fall asleep. I'm not sure what stage you were at. It was only like 7.30 at night, but we had both been on for the entire day. And uh, I think we politely excused ourselves at that point. And maybe I led the charge there. Um, Yeah, yeah, I could tell I could tell you were really fading. I I was ready. I had driven for about six hours. So three hours there and three hours back is a lot. And Brandon always gets (laughs) he's kind of like once he's well, once he's back at his home base, he recharges, you know, <laughs> Brandon's like, uh, you can only take him away from the charging station, which is his house for so long, you know, yes. before he has to go back. Yeah. So this time of year is associated with a lot of things. The weather here in the Bay Area has been hot and humid for, you know, a good period of time. But Christmas lights are still a thing. And this is the weekend that we put up our Christmas lights. In your area, do you do Christmas lights? Do you do Christmas decorations, this kind of stuff? Yeah, I, I, we do. Um, I haven't put mine up yet. Last year, I didn't put them up at all, to be honest mm. with you. Uh, but my neighbors have, my neighbors across the way put theirs up. So I guess if I'm going to do it, I'll probably do it this weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, it should be nice this weekend. So I'll probably do it this weekend. Do you have a standard set of lights or do you have a standard procedure or do you buy new lights? What's your process? Uh, well, we bought some new stuff. Uh, my wife likes those light up like creatures to put in the yard. So we have some of those. And uh, yeah, I have like uh, icicle kind of lights that go across the uh, gutters in the front. <laughs> and then I normally have a uh, rainbow like LEDs to go around all the windows in the front. And uh, I also have like a, 
like a light post out front. Like I'll mm-hmm. spiral that with lights. That's pretty much the outside. Like that's pretty much all I do out there. It's a good amount of lights though. It, yeah. it lights up the whole front yard. Yeah. We have a difficulty associate every, when we buy our lights, they immediately disappear from shelves like the next year. So for the past 12 years, when I put up Christmas lights, you typically get two years out of them, maybe three years out of them. And then like one set fails. So last time hmm. I thought, okay, I'm going to be smart about this. I'll give you an extra couple of boxes. Well, unfortunately, the combination of factors happened this year. My wife wanted me to do a new knotting technique to make sure there's a section where you plug in the new set of lights, basically, and there's a plug in and stuff. So she wanted me to loop that round, uh, which took about a foot and a half off our lights. And then oh. one of the spare sets of lights, well, we had to use one of the spare sets of lights. It is a two person job for us, mainly because my wife acts as quality control. And, um, this year there was one set of lights that was dropped by, um, you know, not me. Let's just put it that way. And <laughs> from this experience, we have a foot and a half less of lights on the house, which means I went online furiously this afternoon to try and find if I could find like any stockist of these lights we purchased three years ago and mysteriously no one sells them not even (laughs) so we now have a circumstance where i'm going to have to buy like ideally i guess one buys christmas lights probably around january 1st i'm thinking and i probably should buy a new set of lights for next year but more than likely what will happen is i'll get to price gouge when i go and buy the lights about the start of the year next year so we have, we're at the last leg of these Christmas lights before we have to retire them. And quite now, frankly, we may actually retire them early. So are you using like bulbs? Are they actual bulbs or are they LEDs? Cause They're I LEDs. find the LED. Oh, They're really? LEDs. I find the, they normally last a lot, a lot longer. I don't, than that. I don't know what, what we just either we don't have any light or maybe we're just hard on them. I mean, I yeah. suspect the temperature differences and I mean, they they deal with. Probably a greater degree of temperature difference in our part of the world than your part of the world. And also, I don't know, I might just be hard on them because the actual hanging of the lights and the nails and we had the house painted, um, what, September, mid-September, and they painted over all the hooks, so all the hooks were still there, it was fine. But I don't know, I think, I don't know, maybe we're just harder on lights than the average person. Because basically, we just re-hook them and, yeah. It's kind of crazy because it gets really cold here uh, and they'll be out there in the freezing rain and mm. the snow and doesn't seem to affect them. So maybe they have a better quality. I need to look into what kind of Christmas lights are sold on the East Coast because my suspicion well, also and these this recent set were not a cheap set. Like they were $50 a box at least, I think. Are so, they ex- are they labeled as exterior lights, not interior lights? Like they're are they- exterior lights. No, they're most <laughs> definitely exterior lights. We also have awnings, so actually the most weather. But I think the might the main issue might be the wind. Like we get mm. a lot of wind, and I think basically they have a lot of travel in their movement. And I mean, certainly the recent set that went out, and we, we're still going to do forensics on them to try and cobble together. <laughs> but that one was it was a dropping that that basically knocked them out. Um, I don't know, but we just don't get any value out of Christmas lights. A frustration. Yeah, stop putting them up. <laughs> that, that's what you should do. Or put up candles like they did back in the old days. Yes, yes. On our wooden house, I think that would go down very, very well. So you mentioned eBay. I rarely delve into eBay. I've, well, that's not true. I, I periodically look at eBay. 
But the thing that really amazes me with eBay is associated with the disconnection of value and the actual item listing. Like, a lot of stuff I would buy if it was at a reasonable price on eBay. It's just never at a reasonable price. Is this something that you encounter that's just like the vast disproportionality or is this the stuff that you look at on eBay usually the right ballpark? Um, I, I use eBay as as a really good tool for gauging like with collectibles and stuff like that. Um, eBay to me is like the free marketplace where people set the price of what stuff is really worth. So I like to look at like uh, auctions that have closed and sold yes, and see that's what the they've been closing part. from. But yeah. I guess my frustration with eBay is so few, the stuff that interests me, so few of the auctions close. So it's just someone with putting in an idiot price, not getting the idiot price, but not learning from their mistake, just relisting again at the idiot price, continuously listing at the idiot price. So do you, yeah, sorry. Do you ever try to make like an offer? Well, that's funny. Funnily enough, the, the only things that I ever interact with on eBay are the ones that have to make an offer. Mm-hmm. Because if they have an idiot price and I can make them an offer, I can at least point them in the right direction associated with what I think these things are worth. And obviously, if it's been listed for 20 plus days, hasn't sold, they haven't actually found the market value of it yet. Yeah. What I find, I mean, the stuff that I'm interested in is so heavily connected with failed hobby that um, usually people put stuff online and then they put the list price of what they paid for the item. Because right. it's a failed hobby, and they're desperately trying to get back, claw back the money that they've put into this failed <laughs> hobby. And that just frustrates me beyond all belief, because they're not actually... There's no free market value in that. It's just them listing some fantasy price and not actually having any interaction. Right. They want to basically uh, use whatever for a brief period of time and then uh, get full price back like they rented it. Alas. Yes, yes. So a beautiful introduction here, a beautiful audio introduction. One of the things that I found fascinating, because I've discovered this locally as well, is the phenomena associated with corgis and corgi owners. I guess you heard them going out. Yes. (laughs) They introduced themselves in the audio perfectly. Don't worry about it. No apology necessary. So within my, literally, the guy who works in the cube next to mine, has it's not a purebred corgi at all it's in fact a corgi with like five different strange mixes including chihuahua of all okay uh so it's a corgi blend but very much the corgi shape just Mm -hmm. he has a husky face like husky is the main other dog so he's got the the head of a husky but the body of a corgi and my uh i do another podcast and uh my other podcast co-host has recently acquired a full pedigree corgi i think a welsh what are they called bush pembroke anyway. uh there's the pembrokes and the cardigans the pembroke, yeah there's two yes. different kinds the yeah. pembroke and i tease her about owning a corgi because my connection with corgis historically have, has been the queen of england mm-hmm. so she's the antithesis of the queen of england but i like teasing her on the podcast associated with her new relationship to the queen of england but what i didn't realize actually was the extent of corgi related stuff and now because I've liked things on Facebook and all these algorithms, I think Facebook thinks that I own a corgi as well. Tell <laughs> us a little bit about the corgi clubs. Tell us about the corgi owning phenomena from your perspective. Uh, yeah, we we always liked the breed. Uh, so that's when we decided to get a dog. That's what we ended up getting. And we have two of them. And for a long time, it was just we had corgis. You know, that was it. We just had our dogs. 
but my wife started seeing on Facebook and and all the viral stuff about the California Beach Day where there'll be like 600 corgis. Mm-hmm. And she thought it would be kind of cool if we could find something like that around here and go and see like a bunch of these dogs all, all at once playing. So through the magic of the Internet, she found a group out of New Jersey, which is very close to us. And we started going and we went once. I thought we'd go once and just it'd be over. But obviously, like we kept going and, and meeting more people. And that's how we met Andy, who you met, who mm-hmm. went to the toy thing with us. So, yeah, we've become friends with a lot of people who own corgis. And it got to be something where we hang out with those people without the dogs. Like we've actually become real friends with them. Mm. Um, but we just happen to all have corgis. So, but it, they're great dogs. It's, it's, they're a lot of fun. They're a herding dogs. So they're real high energy. They need a lot of exercise, but I like having them. I mean, if you don't mind shedding because <laughs> they shed yes. awful. Yes. It's interesting actually, because they all, they have a phenomenon where they lie on their back when they're hot and things like that. I mean, there are certain body movement things, which apparently are shared by corgi owners as well, which I'm mm-hmm. getting visually through, through my uh, podcast co-host friend. Yes, and they and they all yeah. have uh, different names. The way they <laughs> all those different positions have names in the community too. Yes, yes, the manatee and the full manatee and these kind of things. I mean, this might be a, a West Coast naming tradition, but yeah, I'm starting to learn these things too. It is fascinating the notion of like having something which is an adjunct of a social network. So, like you know, collecting something which then puts you in a social network. And I have another podcast associated with model railroading, even though as I look around my podcasting room, I, yes, I have a small set of boxes over there that do contain model railroad related stuff. But in general, I don't think of myself as a model railroader. I'm just a model railroad podcaster. But through doing that podcast, I have generated an amazing social network of just eclectic people that do interesting things that just also have to have this hobby of trains. And I think it's interesting the notion of having some shared interests, which and we talked about, like, you know, black metal and death metal and this kind of stuff, mm-hmm. that you basically have been able to find people that have, like, an interest in this kind of music that also own corgis. And this has been, like, an additional kind of social strata that you've utilised to, uh, you know, find people that you can go to concerts with and things like that, which yeah, is pretty it, interesting. It's, yeah, it's really interesting. It's... Uh... Like Andy is really into toys and comics and video games, which I'm into. So that was cool. And then his girlfriend is into black metal and death metal. So which I'm also into. So we go to concerts together and Andy hates it and my wife hates it. So I'll go to concerts with his girlfriend and then I'll go to the toy cons with him. Mm. Uh, And yeah, I met some other people that are also into that stuff through there. But isn't that how anything is when you meet people, you find these common interests and that's kind of what draws you together with those people. It's very curious, actually. I guess my wife has been extremely successful in this thing, and she has done that very well. I I don't know. I have a recluse element, which this is how Brandon and I have some familiarity as well, that I just, I don't know. I guess there are certain things, like you mentioned the concerts. I've gone to a few concerts that have just been absolutely life-changing, but at the same point... Most of the bands that interest me or have historically interested me don't tour, and it's a rare occasion that they will all tour together or these kind of things. So, yeah, it's a curious thing how, I guess, I have a very kind of classical view of 
how societies are constructed. And I mean, the reason that we are speaking is because you and Brandon went to high school together. I mean, schools are very useful things in terms of bringing certain groups of people together as well and finding these collective interests. But after school, you're really on your own in terms of finding these people. And yeah, I've, I've tried it through podcasts, had some success through podcasts, although what's interesting is through the podcasting friends, these kind of things, they're not like, there are other interests that I have which define me pretty fundamentally. One of the things we definitely don't talk about on Attic Aficionados, because it has no good place in any of this kind of stuff, is politics. And it's one of the things that I find really fascinating about this recording is that Brandon and I could just talk about a wide variety of things, but we never... And in in these times, in these heady political times, recording a podcast where you don't talk about politics, and obviously model railroading is similar, although mysteriously somehow politics made <laughs> into that too. But that is just a luxury in and of itself. So, yeah, it's one of these funny things associated with how do you actually create these social networks. And I thought Corky's was really interesting. Yeah, I definitely think, much like you, you have high school, you have college, Mm-hmm. And then you start to work and I don't hang out with anyone from work. Uh, I don't have common interests there. And I don't like hanging out with work people because they just want to talk about work when you're not mm. working because mm. that's what you have in common with them. Mm. Uh, so I think the only other way to meet people is probably from joining these kind of groups, you know, whatever it is, you know, like – if you're really into mountain biking and you join some mountain biking group or you find stuff online, I mean, that's pretty much the only way you're going to meet people, especially at, at the age we are. Mm. I, I found it really interesting to meet a whole new group of friends mm. through something so weird as just like liking the same breed of dog. So it, it was yeah. it was very nice to, to meet, you know, t- 20 new people that I hang out with it in some capacity one way or the other. But even within that group, it's still like anything else in life. You just, you find what you're the common interest you have within that group too. I mean, there's plenty of people there that the only thing I have in common with is the dog and they're very nice people, but I don't want to hang out with them other than at those uh, dog group meetings and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Uh, it is interesting. Actually, I'm, I'm thinking about this in terms of my time in Westchester I met a lot of really interesting people while I was in Westchester. I met Brandon's wife and his kids, and I met you. And But Brandon's cat <laughs> in <silly>. particular. Yes. <laughs> the cat embodied, like, I looked at that cat and I realised its life philosophy represents my life philosophy at some fundamental level. <laughs> like, I was trying to, trying to coax it over because I have cats. I have cats that are surly. I have cats that are friendly. I've interacted with all perspective of cats. But when I saw him and when I interacted with him, I knew immediately that he had just like a general distrust of the world, kind of looking at everything sideways. I thought this is cat is the embodiment of my, because I guess you describe these things about meeting people, all this kind of stuff. I've met people like when I used to travel, I met a lot of people in my day to day work. I interact with a lot of people. One of the things with my job is I interact with. 100 plus people at least on a weekly basis and just remembering their names is is hard enough so in these kind of concepts when i have time to myself there are some people that i'll seek out there are some people i'll you know take certain components with but yeah it's interesting actually because this this philosophical difference this recluse element is something that i really like about brandon but i saw in particular embodied in his cat (laughs) it's a monstrous cat too oh yeah 
Oh, yeah. He's an impressive cat. I thought that yeah. was a, a good meeting, a good chance meeting to have in Westchester. So I didn't want to take too much of your time. I have one last topic just to fill sure. the last eight minutes. I have, very similar to what we were just discussing, I have a on-again, off-again relationship with stores where I buy things of a hobby nature. And in particular, this manifests itself in a comic book store that I go into periodically. But I have just a set of disdain associated with the store. The main problem is every time my wife goes in there, the guy will literally leap from behind the counter to show her around the comic book store every single time. And I get absolutely no service from this guy. <laughs> well, that sounds about, that's about right of any comic book store. Of any comic book store, yes. But this guy, historically, and we talked about eBay, historically I bought stuff from this guy on eBay. I bought a lot of really eclectic old, and here we're talking about like lead and metal miniatures, games mm-hmm. culture, primarily uh, Warhammer 40,000. So I bought a lot of stuff from this guy, enough that I was on his eBay mailing list. And he actually has a comic book store, which has moved recently. It was in a mall that was getting shut down, and it's now in a strip mall area. The last time I went there, which was probably about four months ago, I couldn't get any service. I literally had an armful of stuff that I was about to purchase, and he kept sending me away so he could sell between 50 uh, cents and $2 worth of cards to regulars that would come in. And I just put my stuff down, and I just left the store. I thought, right, that's it. (laughs) I'm never coming back here again. That's there me is, at Kmart. Believe me. Anyway, so there's a Chinese restaurant that my wife loves. Now, one of the things that I do with my wife is we go out and we enjoy some of the dining that is available in the Bay Area, particularly eclectic cuisine. And one of the things that I like is dim sum, which is basically tapas, Chinese tapas. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. There's one restaurant that my wife loves. It's right by this comic book store. My wife had to go and buy some baby clothes shopping We have various relations and friends that have young children. She wanted to go do that. She said, why don't you just go into the comic book store? And I was like, ah, kind of dreading doing that. So I went in there today and the guy wasn't there. He had his young staff there. Now his young staff are just, they're kids. They're probably in their early 20s. You know, they have no interest in any of this stuff. And they're just (laughs) off in their own little worlds. I say things to them occasionally. The accent trips them up regularly. Like I asked if they had something particular to repeat it a few times but the store had 25 percent off this today for black Friday. okay so i did end up buying some stuff there and i felt look this wasn't such a bad experience but the quality of service issue is such an important thing with me in physical stores in particular because of online online i can order stuff past midnight in fact that's when i make most of my stupid purchases and my view is that um the nature of a store requires a certain amount of service in order for you to be a patron what's your general sense associated with these things do you still go into physical stores or are all your purchases of collecting stuff made online aside from occasional conventions uh i like to well i mean target's pretty much the only store i go to on any kind of frequent mm. basis uh so if i'm buying new toys like uh new star wars black series mm-hmm. or something like that i'll always always go to the toy aisle no matter what i go to target for i go to the toy aisle just to see what they have uh because sometimes when you find something you're really looking for i feel like the thrill of finding it in the wild is mm. is a lot of fun i know i can go online and get it but mm-hmm. i like finding the hard to find thing in the store it, it, it makes it worth more to me i guess mm. um but other than that I don't, I buy everything online. I was on Black Friday. I was on Amazon 
mm-hmm. just happened to be looking for something that was a really good price. So I was like, oh, this is crazy. It's like 50 bucks off. I'm going to buy it. I, I love Amazon. Like Amazon, eBay, I go on to with reluctancy. I, mm-hmm. I, I like eBay and I hate it at the same time. So, but when you're looking for stuff from the eighties, like where else you're going to go, uh, but pretty much Amazon and target, but even target, I'll go online and shop online at target. So Mm. I don't, I don't go to any other stores besides like restaurants. It's interesting actually, because I guess my, my hobbies or my hobby interests, because I was looking around, I mean, this comic book store has figures akin to what was available at New Jersey toy con. And in particular, I was looking behind one of the registers. They had a series of not, you know, Macross Robotech stuff, but stuff which was akin to that. Certainly, mm-hmm. you know, large mech models, this kind of thing. And I sure. realized that actually the eclectic hobby interests that I have, if they are to represent themselves in physical stores, are going to represent themselves in physical stores with angry elderly nerds running them. And yeah, it's interesting because things like Target, for example, I don't know. I mean, there's just nothing in there that is of kind of collecting interest. And I guess that's the distinction with my collecting interest that I've like rarefied them in areas that are only available. And even now, really, the stuff that interests me is not in comic book stores and traditional miniature game stores anymore. They've all gone to plastic. Like everything's plastic now. I got no interest in plastic, really. <laughs> if you can't use, oh, right. if you can't use the figures and melt them down into bullets. For the upcoming apocalypse, it has very little value to me. So, yeah, it's interesting <laughs> in these things because I just look around and in the end I end up buying, like, magazines and as I do, like, updates to rules that I've owned historically. Um, but with the D&D game, I am making purchases in terms of, like, upcoming monsters and things like that. So I am making some purchases still in physical stores. And one of my favourite things, I bought a set of three dragons in um, Santa Cruz. Uh, just actually in Monterey, just on the coast. And we were in some, I don't know, aquarium themed shop. And there were three dragons. Picked them up for 20 bucks. Unbelievable. Like if it was in a miniature gaming store, $150, you know, this kind of stuff. So yeah, I do occasionally find eclectic stuff in the wild that I can use for the D&D game. But yeah, it is interesting, the nature of these hobby stores. Yeah, the, I think that the internet pretty much killed all that because you're talking about stuff that you'd have to go to specialty stores for. Exactly. And it's, how do they compete? They don't have well, the buying power and they have game prices. Spaces. Are, I mean, very similar to what we saw at New Jersey Toy Con. The majority of the store is huge. In fact, there was a, um, oh, this is really, the, I'm losing all nerd credibility here. Uh, Han Solo's ship in Star Wars is called <laughs> the, the Millennium, Millennium Falcon. Falcon. <laughs> they had a huge Millennium Falcon that was like six foot radius in the back, which I was right. going to take a photo of. Anyway, so most of this space is for people playing games. And that's, well, that's basically what they've optimized for. Yeah. The, when we were kids, the uh, Grand and Run Mall, the comic book store that was a Grand and Run Mall was like that. Um, mm. Probably two thirds of it was gaming tables in the back and that and that was like warhammer people playing warhammer um and then down the road like magic the gathering and stuff like that card games and um yeah you're probably right that's probably the only thing they have but how much money are they making over that's just a bunch of space you're leasing there was one time in the uk where my wife was offered a quilt store my wife is obsessive with quilting and she teaches quilting and things like that I've always regretted that we didn't buy that quilt store. In fact, currently, vicariously, we are looking at real estate in your part of the world, 
with the view that we want like an alternative business. And what I've always looked at is how, if I was going to run a wargaming store, because the quilt store had an upstairs which wasn't being used, I thought, well, my wife can have the downstairs and I'll run a wargaming store upstairs and we'll work, I'll basically do all the computers and she'll do all the sales stuff and we'll divide it up evenly. So I have considered, at least one time in my life, periodically, whimsically, what it would be like to run one of those kind of stores. And I think the quilting store is exactly the same. It's the same thing. You need at least two-thirds of the space devoted to people quilting. Actually, physically, there with their sewing machines, quilting. In order to run one of these stores, you can't just have an exclusively cloth and needles and all the other stuff store. You've got to actually have an area to show people how to do this thing. It's like a cult. You want to teach right. in the cult how to be a cult person, right? So, yeah, that's the way they run themselves. They need a certain amount of space. And unfortunately, what is lost oftentimes is customer service. It's about having people doing it and selling the stuff. So you go in, you see the people doing, and you buy the stuff to do. There's no, like, in-between associated with, like... And this is what's really interesting. I had a friend that worked for Games Workshop as we wrap up this podcast. Most of their stuff, the the reason that they're certainly a multi-hundred million dollar industry now is because they have a very tight set of procedures associated with introducing people into the hobby, into the miniature gaming hobby, and also how you retain people. And But a large part of that is explicitly when someone enters the store you greet them you introduce them you walk them through you provide them a narrative and these independent stores that still manage to survive to this day that don't do any of that it is a curio to me i think that those stores are just uh, an odd thing because yeah. you got to have the the manpower there for the for like what you're saying to have people actually buying stuff in the service level so you kind of need to have like two employees, right? Someone in the back showing people and yeah. someone running the front. Well, the trick is that you have people in the back. I mean, ideally, the people in the back, you'll have someone who's paid to do it. And part of the doing is that they get something back. A lot of these gaming stores, they'll have store discounts to certain people. And then the people in the back will do that. And then there should be people in the front that are actually, you know, selling stuff. Some of the stores are really small, and some of the smaller Games Workshop stores, there's no back and front. It's the whole store, right? So the sides are what's doing the selling, and the, the you know, everything after the first six feet, uh, people playing games in the center of the stores. But yeah, I don't know. It's something that always, always interested me, and the failings of it have always interested me as well. <laughs> Aaron, it has been an absolute pleasure to record with you this evening. We are going to, I've talked to Brandon about this. He is more than happy to have you participating on a regular basis when things fall apart for him. Let's get some topics together. Let's get some list of feedback. You're unlike Brandon. (laughs) You are actively on the Facebook page. So you will be able to get direct feedback from the listeners. Uh, Yeah, let's do this thing again. It's been fun. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, Just hit me up. Let me know. Will do. Be happy. Happy to I'll step in for uh, old Brandon. Terrific, yes. And, um, yeah, we'll need to work something out here because part of the Attic Aficionados thing has also got to do with unboxing and other stuff. So now I have your postal address, I'll be able to send you some stuff. Okay, sounds great. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. All right, Tom. See ya. <laughs>